Welcome to another episode of the Market Makers in Middle East and Africa podcast. I am your host Abrar Hussain. Today I speak mm-hmm. to a special guest, Borko Hanjiski, Head of Strategic Projects and Policies at Abu Dhabi Department of Finance. Borko, welcome to the podcast. Abrar, it's a pleasure to be here. Borko, very interesting profile, you know, you have worked in consulting and you know, you are now working with government. Tell us a bit about your story. So, my entire two decades career has been within the public sector. But I have seen the public sector in these 20 years in all possible angles. I started my career at uh, the central bank, an independent regulator. From there, I moved to a supranational organization, the European Commission. Then the path took me to an international public organization, the World Bank, where I spent most of my career, 10 years, doing economic development pretty much around the world. Then from then I moved to the private sector with uh, joint McKinsey and that's how I came to the region, to the UAE. But uh, my work was almost exclusively uh, with uh, public sector organizations. And that finally, or currently, I am part of a national uh, government organization. Mm-hmm. Perfect. I mean, it's very interesting to see that the government organization is able to attract talents like you and from you know, big corporates or well-known, you know, respected corporates like McKinsey. What was the motivation first, you know, to move? And how do you see it, you know, this trend, you know, mainly in the region? So this, uh, having worked with uh, gov- the dozens of governments around the world, this uh, uh, situation where the public sector has uh, uh, attracts uh, expat talent is relatively unique to the Gulf uh, uh, in general. And uh, that comes from the fact that the the Gulf economies are uh, relatively outsized to the to uh, relative to the uh, local population to citizens, which has demanded from governments to also rely on on top talent uh, from abroad. And that's um, a unique situation that they can also afford to invest in bringing people to uh, to to live and work here and attracting through the high quality of of life that. Uh, that uh, at least the UAE offers. So now the other interesting thing is that um, governments uh, here are advanced or the economies of the region are advanced, but at the same time, there is a huge aspiration to transform the economies from being advanced because of natural uh, oil resources to being advanced because of having the knowledge intensive and advanced uh, uh, sectors that drive the growth in the future. And that requires people. Mm -hmm. And I think this talks about the dynamism or uh, I'll say the forward thinking of the government and the government, government department in the region, you know, where they are able to attract really good talent to drive the economic transformation. So absolutely. So when you are transforming, you always try to bring best practices from elsewhere that have been already proven as opposed to uh, having to reinvent everything uh, yourself. That would be the long way. Uh, The short way would be to simply find what have been the best uh, policies, let's say, we are talking about economic development policies elsewhere, who were those who have worked on such policies, bring those uh, uh, individuals uh, to the region in order to, to do something similar. And that goes not just for government policy, that goes also for industry, for uh, research, for academics. And that's what the region has been doing. Mm-hmm. 
And as you have worked almost two decades, as you mentioned, in various economic development projects across the world, tell us some of your key learnings that you have observed across the world. So uh, the world is very different when it comes to economic development. And uh, I always uh, uh, think when it comes to th what uh, thinking about innovative economic policies is that uh, first, it sucks to be Singapore because it's a country that's always at the very top which means they have to figure things out themselves for the first time, which is why many of the things that are today normal within the public sector context were invented there. Uh, BOT model, built operate transfer model for building a large infrastructure was invented by Singapore. The equivalent of uh, SALIC and DARP in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, electronic payroll systems were invented in Singapore. And few other things came from countries that had to think of creating new things. For everybody else, the world is, is or the, the challenge is much easier to solve because you just have to look towards those that are ahead and learn from those experiences and of course incorporate them in your own context. And that's what the UAE at least has been doing. Um, has been looking at best practices and uh, bringing them here for, so that one day it becomes in that area the leader and others learn them from the UAE. Mm -hmm. And how do you see the current economic landscape in the whole MIA region or the MENA region? And how do you see the future from economic perspective? So if you see the, what the leading, let's say, authorities on, uh, on this uh, topic uh, are saying, the, at the moment, the view is consistent, be it the IMF, the World Bank, uh, Oxford Economics, or any other um, uh, forecaster, has the same view that the GCC is very well positioned over the coming years for two reasons. One, oil prices have been at a level that allow uh, significant um, uh, income from, from, uh, from uh, exports. And two, governments are investing and are attracting the private sector to invest into their economic transformation. So these two combined are the key drivers behind the positive outlook that this region will outpace the rest of the world, in, at least the rest of the advanced world, in terms of economic growth. Mm -hmm. And how do you see specifically from UAE perspective, how do you see you know, UAE in current, in few years, next few years? So the UAE in the next few years, uh, again, building on this uh, positive momentum, is uh, has... Uh, it's a great time ahead from the perspective of being able to monetize on the recent uh, efforts that have been made. If you look at the past two years, major policy reforms happened. You saw uh, changes, overhaul of the visa, re uh, visa regime, introduction of golden visas, if introduction of digital nomad visas. You had um, huge um, policies slash operational improvements in business licensing. Costs were slashed for business, uh, for registering a company to as low as 1,000 dirhams. Uh, process of opening a company is fully digitized. This and some other uh, uh, recent reforms, unemployment insurance and few others, will give the benefits in the coming years. On top of that, you have the momentum is, is still there. So initiatives that are yet to come that will add on top uh, to the let's say, ease of doing business and to the high quality of life that uh, the country offers 
and that will be the the driver of future growth now coming to the various sectors where do you see borco that these are few of the sectors in the economy which will be doing really well in coming years be it for the gcc region or be it for ua so if we start first with a broader uh, view let's say the gcc i would even say mina in general there are some things uh, that are common across the region despite the, the gaps in development levels uh, that will become assets for future uh, economic growth one is for example that uh, the entire region has a young growing population this is an enormous asset compared to the rest of the developed world which is uh, sh- uh, facing a shrinking population in many countries on top of that now in the gcc and the uae is not just growing population but is growing educated and highly skilled population mm-hmm. with the high uh, uh, enrollment rates in university at least in the uae so that's one uh, huge asset for future economic development for the next 20 years not not for the next 2 uh, years a second uh, uh, asset that's common again now for the broader mina region is uh uh natural endowment but not now what's underground but more of solar and wind the clean energy transition that the uae and the region in general are uh, uh, have embarked uh, embarked on are going to unlock opportunities for all countries uh, uh, across the, the region because the sun and wind are available in most countries so that's another common um, uh common uh, let's say um, asset to uh to to build on a third one is agriculture this region is not uh, let's say have been uh, is not ideally positioned for for agriculture however the agriculture technology revolution is opening opportunities that simply did not exist before and that's going to be another uh, example of a sector that has yet to benefit from the from the recent innovations mm-hmm. and how do you see you know developing new policies when it comes to attracting investment or economic development taking care of so many parameters for kind of you know at a country level so how one go about it so um, here the the gcc is uniquely positioned to offer what the those private companies or what those investors need because it's lucky to have all the pieces of the puzzle so as in any country the government here has uh, the ability to introduce policies and i spoke about the examples of what has been done recently uh but beyond what most countries have this uh, region and the un speci- uh, specifically has the ability to also invest and plant the seeds in those um, uh, industries that it wants to build leveraging the uh savings that have been accumulated over the past decades with and which are managed through the sovereign wealth funds the other thing that makes uh, this region unique is that it's able to make long term bets because the leadership has a, a long term agenda that's not disrupted like other uh, developed countries through changes in uh, in uh, in party politics which in theory it would not need to mean changes in long term directions but in today's polarized world it does so that's another asset that you can bet make bets on long term uh, uh on long term initiatives and those typically uh, yield higher returns
Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that there are good growth that will happen. There are big initiatives that will come and there are many sectors which will grow. Do you see that UAE's financial sector ha- is you know, well positioned to kind of meet the aspiration of the economy, fund those mm-hmm. projects and uh, meet the aspiration of the people? Yes, yeah, so this is a very important uh, uh, driver or enabler of economic growth, especially the financial sector, especially if you have such an ambition to transform the economy. So in the case of the UAE, today, following the buildup over the last few years, all the pieces of the financial sector system are now in place and able to promote the, the investment and growth that's needed. Uh, the local banking sector was always there. But the local banking sector that provides credit is only one source of uh, uh, finance. Today, the capital markets are also there. Previously, U.S. capital markets were small, but today both Abu Dhabi, ADX and Dubai's DFM are among the top 20 uh, market exchanges. Three, the venture capital uh, source of finance, which was very, um, let's say, um, uh, small until uh, a few years ago, now has reached, uh, let's say, uh, a critical size and it continues to grow. That fall meets the needs of the tech entrepreneurs and the startups, etc. So, uh, and finally, you have, again, uniquely to the UAE and the Gulf, you have the sovereign wealth funds, which also provide uh, access to finance through JVs or through directly investing in certain projects that are of local interest. Mm-hmm. Borgo, one of the important <clears throat> things that, you know, for a large economy or for a country level, you have people and then you have, you know, government and government entities, private entities, small business. All of them are very critical to kind of drive the economy forward or to have a growth. How important is the financial literacy you know, for individuals, for the businesses, for even, you know, the SMBs, and what's your take on it? So financial literacy is a very important macro-level element, even though it sounds a very micro-topic. So financial literacy is about individuals being able to grasp, understand, and apply common uh, financial uh, uh, elements uh, such as, uh, or concepts such as inflation, interest rates, debt, borrowing. So uh, in the context of successful countries and advanced economies, financial literacy is high because that's one way to ensure that individuals manage their personal well-being well, and by that, society's well-being is high. So if you look at the country with the highest financial literacy, it's Denmark. Denmark, three out of four adults, not adults, three out of four people above 15 are considered financially literate. That's the highest rate in the world. And the reason being is that Denmark introduces financial literacy in the curriculum from very early stages. So by the time you're a 15, 16-year-old in high school, you're already able to understand these concepts and to apply them. So in, in MENA, financial literacy rates are way lower than that, uh, let's say, aspirational goal of, of, of Denmark or lower than advanced countries in general. So uh, especially in develop, developing MENA region. So promoting financial literacy means that individuals make better decisions, which at the micro level means better economic outcomes. 
Mm-hmm. Now, you, I heard from the conversation mm-hmm. that you are writing a book called The Public Sector CEO. Tell us about your book, what you are trying to achieve and why you are writing this book. So um, what inspired me to write this book is um, um, the observation that I have had over these past 20 years working with uh, within the public sector domain is that there is very little literature out there or books out there available for the that talk about the public sector context and the needs of public sector leaders. So I work on the public sector. Uh, I've worked on it, the public sector, throughout my entire career. Yet the books I, re- I read are, when it comes to leadership, are written by uh, corporate CEOs or ex-CEOs or sometimes by, by politicians or government leaders, but not on the leadership agenda, but more on their policy agenda, like uh, Barack Obama's Audacity of Hope, or on their, uh, let's say, historical struggle, if you, if you read Nelson Mandela's book. But um, there are very few books that talk about the business of running a public sector organization. And uh, Harry Truman said, every uh, uh, leader is a reader, so that to me seems as a gap on the market. Uh, these public sector leaders should benefit from having the same access of, of, of knowledge that corporate CEOs have. So I thought I would uh, make a small contribution, hopefully, uh, to, mm-hmm. to this literature. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, you know, <clears throat> book. Uh, I hope you know, it will be good and useful. But what's behind the name? Why you know, a public sector CEO? Because n- normally like, CEOs are for you know, private enterprises for profit. So what's behind the name? So the, the reason for the name is that public sec- heads of public sector organizations have two heads to wear, the politician head and the chief executive uh, head. Now, what happens in real life <clears throat> uh, is that the, there is a tendency to wear more the politician head than the, than the chief executive head. At least in my experience working in developing countries around the world, where uh, you have the, let's say, the, the, the political system is such, you have four-year elections, so time is short, so there is more emphasis on, the, on, the, on that uh, role. So I wanted to highlight that to achieve results, the heads of public sector organizations should put uh, at least an equal emphasis or even more on the other head, the CEO head. And that was the inspiration for the title. Mm-hmm. And what are the main messages of your book and what advice you are trying to give and what are the source of those advice? So the main messages for the, of the book uh, speak to the unique context of the public sector and offer advice on uh, how to manage that unique context to achieve your vision as a leader of a public sector organization, be it a ministry or an authority or an agency or uh, whatever the institution is. So uh, those, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, lessons learned or best practices are around how to manage yourself as a, as a leader, how to manage the organization, and how to manage the, the external environment. And each of them, there are 16 uh, chapters, each of them speaks to the uniqueness of the public sector. For example, on managing yourself, one thing that's unique in, as a head of a public sector organization is that you get pulled 
into so many different things because you have so many stakeholders to serve. So your time can easily get hijacked on topics that have very little to do with your set goals. So there is a chapter called Don't Be a Fireman. I got the inspiration for the chapter from, uh, from um, uh, Tony Blair, who spoke once when I was at the World Bank, who was saying, uh, who was saying that if you become a fireman, you achieve very little because you're just putting fires every day and uh, not much gets done from what you really wanted to do. So then when it comes to leading the organization, one thing that's different in the public sector context from the corporate world is that when you do things, you, also, you always have to think about the all the consequences, including the unintended ones. There is a saying from I don't know who that unintended consequences are the mother of all failed public policies. In business, you don't really care much about the uh, effects on what you do on your competitor. Actually, if anything, you, you probably are happy about uh, uh, any negative consequences you may fail. But in the public sector, it's different. If you put a policy that is good for, I don't know, the education system, but has a bad environmental impact, that could be a failed policy. So there is some suggestions about how to do that, uh, etc. So now the source for the, for the lessons is um, uh, uh, threefold. I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, more than 20 uh, public sector leaders from all around the world. And I got great advice about how they dealt with the different uniquenesses of public sector and practical tips on what could make uh, uh, one successful in a general context. So what the ex-minister from Singapore I spoke to uh, told me would be relevant for a future minister in Chile uh, uh, on how to, how, to, how to get things done. Um, the second source was a survey that I did of additional 30 public sector leaders. And finally, I also embedded some of my observations from my 20 years uh, working with, uh, with public sector leaders. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it, it sounds very interesting, Boku, and good luck with the book. Thank you very much. Uh, now, economic development, you know, has many things in it, you know, the policies, industry trends, you know, macro uh, events, micro events. How do you stay informed and how do you make sure that you stay ahead of the curve uh, in, when it comes to updating yourself? So for me, I like to uh, I like to absorb information. So I try to uh, take on as as much uh, as much as I can. So I use different uh, sorts of information. First of all, and the reason that uh, I'm here today is that I enjoy listening to podcasts. So uh, I specifically look for podcasts that talk about. Uh, uh, either uh, uh, economic development topics or public sector topics in general or leadership topics. Uh, so podcasts like uh, Freakonomics or uh, there is one podcast that's called Coffee with the Greatest or Tim Ferriss' uh, interviews podcast. So that's one important source. And this is, I usually um, I listen to podcasts uh, when I uh, go back uh, back into to work. Second is books. I, I love reading. So uh, I uh, I read all the time. And again, on the same topics. And uh, finally, I always like to keep myself up to speed on what's happening in the world today. So I look at uh, daily media and magazines and uh, the weekly newspapers, like The Economist, that keep me up to date on what the, what the world is doing on the topics that are uh, ultimately my job and my interest. Mm-hmm. Bogo, my last question. I mean... Why you chose public sector to work in public sector and spend your whole life there? And what motivates you every day to do your job in a good way? So 
the last day before the deadline for signing up for university, I didn't know what should I study. It was economics or engineering. I decided economics and that ended up shaping my, uh, my uh, entire career. And it's ultimately because I get fulfillment and joy in creating value and public sector or policymaking allows you to create value at scale as no other place. Because what, uh, what the government does impacts practically everybody. It impacts companies, it impacts individuals, it impacts the planet and nature. So that's really what keeps me going and what uh, makes me happy to go to work every day. Perfect. Borgo, pleasure to have you and thank you very much for coming. It's a pleasure to talk to you. It was my pleasure, Abrar. Thank you for having me. Thank you.